0: Good evening. I'm um, here to introduce our keynote speaker. Clinton J. Armstrong serves as an associate professor of Christ College in History and Political Thought at Concordia University, Irvine, where the marriage of his interests as a classicist and theologian has met a passion for liberal arts education among his colleagues and in his classroom. His greatest joy is leading students through great books, especially the ancient Greeks and Romans, beginning with the Enduring Questions and Ideas Core Curriculum and extending to the rest of their career as thinkers and educators. He has most recently pursued uh, research and translation of the Acts of the Colloquy of Montebellar, a conference held in 1576 among German, French, and Swiss Reformation theologians. Dr. Armstrong graduated from Washington University and Concordia Seminary in St. Louis in 2001. After serving as vicar and assistant professor in Orange County, he left parish ministry to finish graduate work at University of California, Irvine, where he received his Ph.D. in Classics in 2012. He has taught at Washington University, UCI, Cal State Long Beach, and CUI, and served pastoral vacancies in Southern California, including his home congregation, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Pomona. He lives in Roland Heights with his wife, Rebecca, and their three children. Additionally, the reason why I'm standing up here and introducing Dr. Armstrong is that it was during his time at UCI when he took me under his wing. If it weren't for this charitable act, I would not be at at the Cambridge school today. CJ's engaging and humorous style of teaching, as well as his faith, naturally drew me to him. His passion for Latin, my first class with him, was so inspiring as to lead me to declare a classics major by the middle of my freshman year. I often recall a particular salient quote from one of our conversations wherein Dr. Armstrong encouraged my pursuit of classics. Jim, if you, don't like, if you, if you like the pain of Latin, then you really ought to try Greek. <laughs> the fact that this is exactly what I did, seeking out more challenges for a joy that he helped me discover speaks volumes to the incredible quality of teacher that he is. I am blessed to call him my mentor and friend. Please join me in welcoming Dr. C.J. Armstrong.
1: Thank you, Jim, and thank you all again for that very generous introduction. And I repeat the welcome to parents and students, faculty, staff, board members, and many friends of the school who are here in support, those who serve by planning and guiding, those who serve by teaching, those who serve by trusting and investing, those who serve by attending and learning. I'm honored to be asked to share some words with you this evening as a fellow friend of the Cambridge School. There's always a risk when you ask a clergyman to say a few words. As I mentioned to the Bible class who didn't put a time limit on me yesterday in San Mateo, an inch is as good as a mile if you've got a lectern or a pulpit or just an audience, but fortunately I have a time limit under which I'd like to offer some thoughts of another clergyman, this one From the 4th century AD, a teacher of the Christian church named Basil, from Caesarea, who started a lesson to the young people under his care with the question, what's the good of reading good books? And his answer was pretty short and sweet and to the point, too. Basil said that we've got to read good books. Because if we don't, we'll be missing out on the ability to read the good book, capital G, capital B. Unless we read the good books, nay, the great books, we'll be left, frankly, with a Bible that's a closed book to us. So my question is, could this be true, even if those great books tell us falsehoods? untruths and lies? This is a great risk that Basil knew and that I know, too, because, dear friends, my favorite books, and some of your favorite books, too, I know, are the ones we know so well. They're books that I love to teach from at my school, and it turns out that they're books that my students love to learn from, too, because they're books of mythology and and classical history and wonderful stories from the Greeks and Romans. By far, at most universities that offer the course, a class in mythology is not populated by majors. In fact, mythology classes fill up 500-seat lecture halls quickly from all majors, sometimes to fill a requirement, yes, but sometimes also just because, well, it's fun. It's fun to read Homer and the Aeneid of Virgil. It's fun to read Ovid's Metamorphoses. These are great stories. There's something that pulses in the blood of Westerners especially that says, these are my stories. These are a reflection of my history and my present. These are emanations of my psychology and interaction with the world that I see and the world that's invisible. These stories are fun to read and tell and retell again. This telling and retelling, that's of course what makes mythology, mythology. And I've hooked more majors than just Mr. Hamilton in that. More than just one major for the humanities or classics or ancient history with a mythology course because after all, who wouldn't want to forsake hours and hours and years and years learning higher math when you could just read mythology all day long? Who wouldn't want to forsake all of those difficult courses in biology or business over the next several years for an undergraduate degree spent reading those old stories of intrigue and parricide and glory and heroism and love? I've hooked minors from people in the hard sciences at two California universities because so they tell me those mythology and humanities courses were the first ones at college where the class made them feel human. That's why we call it humanities. Those fools who get bit hard by the bug end up like me pursuing research in the stories of metamorphosis from poets long dead who left us their testimonies of human virtue and vice in the most beautiful poetry imaginable. But for all that, these stories are the stories of myths, and we're so tuned to thinking about myth as solely equivalent to lie and falsehood and untruth that we must stand head-to-head with the question once again that Basil was asking. What place does any of this have in a school that calls itself Christian? What good is it? What source of profit? To whose advantage is it that we tell these stories and tell the story of those whose stories they are. Ancient myths, ancient philosophy, ancient history. Basil, our church father, reminds us that we don't read them because they're true. We read them because they point to the truth. We don't read them because we believe in the gods of their myths. We read them because they are a mirror of the truth, a reflection of the truth, a guide to getting there, that the best people have been attempting to illuminate for centuries and centuries, whether they're Christians or not, centuries and centuries until today, so that you, dear student, could finally see the light, so that you could see the way there too like a fruit-bearing tree whose leaves shade the fruit lest it fry in the sun, so also the classics, the great books, are there to protect you with their shade so that you can appreciate the glory of the sun, the true light of the word of God, without being burned away, blown away, or baffled by its glory, so that you may learn to read. Whose profit? To whose advantage? A quick language lesson to get us thinking about this in a language with which all of these children and many of us in the room are not unfamiliar. My favorite thing to teach Latin. The phrase I'd like to talk about is a simple two word phrase, and it goes, cui bono. Let's all say it together, cui bono. Yeah, you guys are good students. Cui Bono, C-U-I-B-O-N-O. Dative singular masculine interrogative pronoun, so-called dative of advantage, plus a dative singular neuter of a substantive adjective, a so-called dative of purpose, which one of my favorite masters called a dative of source, the so-called double dative construction, the predicative dative, which will show up as a nice trivia problem on your AP Latin exam or the National Latin exam. Good luck, Mr. Hamilton. And juniors, and seniors to come. Cui bono. The phrase translates simply, whose advantage is it? Who gets the goods? Who gets the profit from what we do? We use it at my school for two reasons. I'm the leader of the student society called Cui Bono, and it's great because C-U-I, the first uh, first word in that is the acronym for my University, Concordia, University, Irvine, Cui Bono. But the other reason that's great for this student society is that we always have to be asking that question. To whose advantage is this education? To whose advantage? Who profits from the things we do in the classroom? Who profits from doing homework and study and reading? Who profits in a boardroom with a meeting, or on the phone, or in an email related to the school? For whom is this a source of any good? Whenever Cicero used the phrase qui bono, he quoted the consul Lucius Cassius Longinus from the 120s BC, who had a very simple way of solving any capital case to his own satisfaction. If there was a crime of murder or theft or some such, the consul would simply ask, qui bono, who stood to benefit? Follow the money, follow the motive, follow the one who had the best chance to profit from the deal, and you've got your culprit. But with education, we're not talking about perpetrators and punishments, about criminals and consequences, unless we're talking about the sad state of affairs that characterizes the lack of schooling still today in various locales around the world, not to mention so much of the waste in what happens in progressive education today. It was at this point that I thought seriously about offering you a story or a statistic about waste in the public education systems close to one trillion dollars of expenditures annually, but I decided against it. Not only because I believe there are several public schools that are doing right by what they say they intend to do, but also because it doesn't make very pleasant reading. It's pretty depressing. Suffice to say that because Parents have a choice. A classical school has the most incentive to deliver on its promise to teach, the most incentive to prove its integrity, the most incentive to sustain a consistent effort to deliver the highest quality education that exists. So I'm not going to look for a crime or a criminal. I'm just going to look to turn the tables and ask again, for whom... Is a classical education any source of profit or advantage? You look around at our new four-year-olds and five-year-olds and other new students at the Cambridge School, and you have to know it's to the students' advantage that they are here and continue on. But it's also an advantage for a person like me and the faculty who love to teach here and the people who invest in this school because this is the best education you can have in this area of the state, of the country. But I will also say that this education is of benefit for a world outside of these walls that is edging itself one step closer to the precipice of disaster and barbarism, easily selling the birthright of a civilization as cheaply as the price of not taking the effort to reflect on where it comes from, where it is, and where it's headed. All because it's hard to read, hard to write, and think, and consider all that history and classical learning has to teach. It's easier just to sit and ignore and grow lazy and die without handing to a new generation the best of what's been thought through the ages. They need your classical education. Those who aren't here need what you have to give because of your classical education. It is of no value unless you can hand it down to the next generation. These new five-year-olds, these new students, these new 11th graders and everyone in between. So with that, I'm going to wrap up with the words that Basil wrapped up with when he was teaching that lesson to those young people. His lesson to the young people compared them to people who need a doctor. He says, I hope that you're not so in need that your people in the last class, because there's only three classes of people who need a doctor. There's those who are a little bit sick; they got a cough, it, <clears throat> and they go see the doctor immediately. And then there are those who've put it off for years, and then they keep on coughing, <laughs> and they're so sick that the doctor has to come to them. And then there's those who put it off a lifetime, and they've been coughing so much that the doctor says, "I'm not even coming. You got to call an undertaker." He's talking about education, of course. Those who are to be educated fall into three categories. The eager, who only need a little bit because they're gonna go to the doctor. They're gonna go get the goods. They're gonna get the sources, the fonts, what classical education has to offer. And then there's those who might be hopeful, but they've been lazy through their entire life They thought, well, maybe I'll start reading that philosophy, those stories, that mythology, later on when I have time. But they should have done it sooner. The eager, the hopeful, the doomed. I thank God that there is no one in these walls who is in the category of the doomed. Thanks be to God. But dear friends... Is your neighbor there? Is your civilization there? Is your world there? To whose advantage is your classical education, dear friends of Cambridge School? Quibono. God bless you in a new school year. As you serve the Lord by serving your neighbor with the goods that you've received, hand them to the next generation. God bless.